On last week's episode of Seeking Proof, Finding Grace, we're going to talk about what God's purpose is. But in the midst of all of this, we run into the problem of my free will. You see, my free will wants this hamburger. But but the problem is, I know I shouldn't be eating this hamburger. But that hamburger is just perfection on a plate. What I should be eating is a salad. back to the Seeking Proof Finding Grace podcast. I'm your host, Ron Campbell, and this week, as with every week, I want to begin by challenging you with the most important fact in the entire universe. God loves you. Now, to wrap some context around that, a couple weeks ago, we began by looking at the question of who is God, and we looked at that through God's own description of himself in the story of the prodigal son. Last week, we kind of expanded on that topic by looking at what is God's purpose. And just remember, God's purpose is to have an eternal relationship with us. The problem that we run into is our free will. And as we talked about last week, for there to be any kind of a relationship between two people, you have to have free will or you don't have any kind of a relationship at all. But along with free will comes that potential for a downside. And that's what we looked at was what were the big picture implications when we as mankind fell in the Garden of Eden. We talked about that from the book of Genesis, and we walked all the way through to Revelation, where God begins wrapping all of that up, and how all of that was going through the cross. And that was God's purpose was to go through the cross, because he knew we could never make it on our own. This week, we're going to bring that down to a much more direct level for you and I. What does specifically that mean for us? And As we look at that, what are God's options when we reach this point of asking the question, if yours and my free will is really such a problem, then how does God deal with that and what are we looking at? So this week we're going to continue looking at God's purpose. Next week we're going to tackle how does he do that looking at God's plan. So let's begin this week by kind of walking through again the story of the prodigal son. You'll remember from last time, as we looked at this story, we have two boys, an older and a younger son, and the older son is consumed by legalism and earning his way into the father's love, which he didn't need to do. And the younger son is restless, and he wants out of the relationship. If, if we remember what we can glean from the story, he's living in an amazing situation where he lacks nothing. He has no need for food, no need for shelter. He has a great roof over his head. And what we know about his father, even though the younger son wants to leave, Remember, when things reach rock bottom and he looks back at his father, he not only remembers that his father was wealthy and had all sorts of resources and that he could get food in his belly, but he also looks at his father and recognizes that his father was compassionate and merciful and loving and forgiving because even when he looked at his dad and said, you're not dying fast enough and and I'd like my inheritance now, that, that's kind of the ultimate nuclear comment to any relationship between a father and a son. He knew that his dad could even look past that comment. You know, you, it's easy to miss that when the story begins, but as we walk through the story and look at it, if the son is willing to come home and give it a shot, he's got to recognize the qualities in his father that he overlooked when he walked away from his father in the first place. So as we begin, we need to keep all of those things in mind when we look at this from the perspective of the father and the son, because we want to see what the options are on the table for both of them as we prepare to move forward. So let's start with the son as we begin this analysis. 
The son has decided to walk away from the father, and he wants to go live on his own. He wants life to be all about him. He wants his money. He wants his freedom, and he thinks if he can go live a self-centered life all about him, he's going to be happier, and we see a lot of that, especially in our culture today. The son walks away from his father and just completely destroys his life. None of the things that he thought were going to satisfy him have made him happy. He's run out of money. He's run out of friends. He's run out of food. He has no roof over his head. He's lost everything. And everything that he thought that was going to fill that hollow spot inside of him has left him empty. So the son reaches this point of being completely out of options. And, and we don't sometimes recognize exactly how empty the son is because the son believes he has no way back into relationship with the father. And that kind of hits home for a lot of us. A lot of people feel like, well, I, I don't know if there is a God or not, but they, you're kind of afraid that maybe if there is a God, he can't be happy with me. Look at all the things that I've done wrong. That's one of the reasons that we started with Ephesians chapter 1. And we had, remember, we quoted from Ephesians chapter 1. Jesus knew, God knew before he laid the foundations of the earth, that this was going to take going through the cross. He didn't back away from that at all. He believed that we were worth it. And when I say we were worth it, again, I'm not talking about all of humankind. That's true. He did believe that. But individually, he looked at you. He thought about you. He looked at me and thought about me and said, yeah, they're worth it. They individually are worth it. Each and every one of us is worth it. So don't ever fall for that lie. Don't ever fall into that trap of, of thinking, well, if there is a God, he can't possibly love me and forgive me. That's exactly what Jesus is trying to get across. So remember, he's talking to two groups of people, the religious leaders of the day, who ironically in this story are represented by the older son trying to earn their way into heaven, and then the, the sinners in the story who are represented by the younger son. Remember, the religious leaders are mad that Jesus is hanging out with the sinners. And what he's trying to get all of them to understand is, you don't understand who your father is and how much he loves you. He has loved you since before you were born, and he thinks it's worth it to get back into relationship with you, everything that it's going to cost me. And if Jesus could have just looked at him and said that, that's the point that he's trying to get across. They just didn't realize it at the time. So the younger son thinks there's no way back into relationship with his father. And the most that he can hope for, maybe he can rely on his father's goodness and mercy and love, and maybe he can be hired back as a hired, as a hired hand, as a, a worker on the ranch. The son needs healing, and only the father can do it. So let's shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about the father now. So from the father's perspective, how do we look at this? And this is really difficult, but I think you really get a good glimpse of this through the eyes of a parent with your own children. What do we do as parents as we watch our children grow up? Well, you can't force them to do anything after a while. When they're two years old, you can try to force them to do a lot of things, but you know there's a reason they call it the terrible twos. There's this war that starts happening about 18 months with your kids when they all of a sudden want to start exercising their freedom. And as a two-year-old, in that 18 months to two-year-old range, you begin having this war with them that doesn't end until, I think, the day they move out. It's a real balancing act as a parent. You set guardrails around your kids, and those guardrails change the older they get and the more responsibility they can handle. 
But you think about what you can and can't do as a parent. You can't force them to make decisions after a while. Yeah, you can force them to do things when they're two years old. But when they're 18 years old, there's a lot of things you can't force a kid to do. And you shouldn't force a kid to do. At some point, they've got to stand on their own two feet. At some point, you have to let them go. You encourage them to make good decisions. You love them. You help them. You give them good guidance. But at some point, you kind of have to step back after you've given them you, you know, you give them what, what is the best. You look at them and you, you help them to understand these are the things that I want you to do. And from my perspective as a parent, because I'm a fallen human being like anybody else, I look at my kids and I desperately don't want them to make the same mistakes that I made when I was a kid. So many things I tell my children not to do, they probably look at me and scratch their head and go, I have no idea what you're talking about. I've tried to be really honest with my kids and look at them and say, I'm telling you not to do that because I did that stupid thing when I was your age. And I don't want to see you make the same mistakes. From God's perspective, he's not fault coming at it from that perspective where he's fallen and made mistakes. He's perfect. But God has given us that set of guidelines. He's given us that set of rules. He's looked at us and said, look, this is the best. I want the best for you. And this is the best. And this is what I recommend for you. And that's what the father's done in this story. The father's given the son his best, and the son chooses to leave. Now, this is where things start to get dicey, because lots of people kind of are tempted to blame God for the predicaments that we find ourselves in. And you, you kind of look at it in this scenario. Remember, this is God describing himself, and it's hard to blame the father in this story. And that's kind of, if we're being honest, it gets real hard to blame God for some of the things that we do. There's lots of things that we don't like, but remember, that was where we, why we started last week with what we did. We turned over ownership of everything that we see around us to the adversary who hates us. And we don't like the way things are being run right now. This is not the way God created anything. So... After it's been changed, I know we have lots of issues with God, and we're going to talk a lot more about this down the road, but as we look at this, there's a lot of things that we have to own up to that our free will causes some serious problems. You know, if we really look around the world, there are so many things that eat at us, disease and starvation and human trafficking, and my goodness, the list goes on forever. But if we look at these things, how many of these things could we actually fix if we cooperated as a race of people, as the human race, if we sat down and said, we're going to stamp out human trafficking, or we're going to stamp out hunger, we're going to stamp out, you know, so many diseases are caused by things as simple as not having enough, you know, not having clean water, not having good sanitation. There are so many things that we could do if we put our mind to it. It's it's awfully easy to blame God for a lot of things. And personally, when those things hit us close to home and we have no responsibility in them, something bad happens and I had nothing to do with it, then it's hard sometimes not to go, God, where were you that day? And, and we're going to talk a lot about that as we go forward. But as we look at this, it's very difficult to look at the father in this story and say, okay, what could the father have done differently to keep the son? We could have locked him in his room. I mean, you know, again, the, the son, as far as we know, isn't 10 years old. So you can't just lock the kid in his room. When the son tells you, hey, dad, you're not dying fast enough, and I would like my inheritance now. You know, as the, as the father, I don't know how you fix that. I think at some point you have to get out of the kid's way and go, okay, right. knock yourself out. I mean, it's amazing that the father approached it from the perspective of saying, okay, here's your inheritance. Now, 
After the son leaves, then we need to start looking at also what did the father do at that point? And this is the amazing thing. God doesn't look at any of us through the context of our worst day. And I think that's so important when we think about this. You know, I mentioned before that God's not angry with us and that God looks at our life from this amazing perspective outside of time sometimes. Think about what that means. God doesn't judge me based on that one really bad day that I did that really bad thing. God doesn't look at me at the end of the day and go, well, let's talk about how you behaved in rush hour traffic today because you were terrible. God is looking at me through the context and through the scope of my entire life. And he's looking at me through a very different perspective. Do the minute-by-minute decisions that I make have an impact? Absolutely they do. At some point, I need to make the decision that the younger son made. I need to come back to my father. But the same is also true in all of this, that God's not focused in on that one bad moment that I had. I'm not earning my way to heaven. Going to heaven is a gift. And I want to make it sound like, well, what I'm saying is I need to work my way there. Not true. We go to heaven based on a relationship with Jesus Christ. It is a gift of grace by accepting him as Lord and Savior. It's a one-time decision, one and done. But I also don't want you to focus in on, well, God's going to be looking at me through the context of that one really bad decision that I made. It's hard to imagine a decision worse than looking at your father and saying, hey, by the way, you're not dying fast enough. I'd like you to die sooner. That's about as bad of a thing, a, a, a decision you could make as, in a relationship standpoint. And the father doesn't look at the son through that context. That's what we need to walk away with here. The father looks at the son and loves the son and is desperately waiting for the son to come back. Could he have made the son more comfortable where he was? There's a happy middle ground, right? Maybe the father could have sent the son some more money in that faraway land. I don't think most of us would have done that. Not because we were angry at the younger son for what he did, but I think most of us recognize that's a terrible idea, sending the younger son money. He's already just destroyed his life. He's been living and partying. He has no friends, no home, no roof over his head, no food, no anything. The last thing you want to do is go, hey, I'm going to send him some money and help him keep going in that direction. There's no reason the father would do that because that's a terrible decision if in the long run you love the son and you want him to come home. The reality is true for us too, and this is the hard part to remember sometimes. God's focus, his purpose is not to have a relationship with us here on earth. He does want to have a relationship here during our brief lifetime on this planet. God's goal is an eternal relationship with us in heaven forever. So our comfort and well-being on this planet during this brief hundred years that we might live, let's say, pales in comparison to an eternity with him. So God's focus is going to be not on making us super comfortable here, he wants us to be good here, and we're going to talk next week about his plan. But God's focus is going to be on eternity. That's his number one purpose, is an eternal relationship with us, not just a relationship here. Relationship here is the beginning, but eternal relationship, that's the purpose that he's looking for. Now let's expand on this idea just a little bit more. So God's goal is an eternal relationship with us in heaven, but how does he get us there? Well, the heavy lifting has got to be done here, and it's a combination of us and God. So God has done his piece of this on the cross. Remember, the younger son is looking at this from the perspective of, I can't ever get back into relationship with my father. And the father's thinking, oh, no, 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 I'm going to fix that. 
Because the father is going to heal the younger son completely. So Jesus is going to go to the cross and he is going to pay for the sins of all of mankind at the cross. So that's going to take care of redeeming the son back into the family. That, that act of grace, that, I, that gift that we've been given, that brings full healing and restoration to the younger son. Remember a couple weeks ago I mentioned the father gives three gifts to the younger son. He puts a ring on his finger and that ring has got the family crest on it. So when the younger son would be able to seal documents and things like that, new sandals and a new robe, the best robe. Those represented complete restoration back into the family for the younger son. So God has done his piece. God has completely opened up the door for the younger son to return in, and his act of redemption heals the younger son. You can let the younger son come back and be a ranch hand and not be back in the family, but the younger son never gets healed in that case. So God is looking for an eternal relationship with us, and the heavy lifting is going to have to be done here. But part of that is going to have to be done on our end, too. We've got to make the decision to come back. Remember when we went through this story, we don't know that the older son ever returns back. The younger son comes to his senses, and the younger son returns home and comes back into relationship with the father. The older son, who is so caught up in earning his way into relationship with his father, the way the story ends, he never returns home. So why does God do—how is God doing this? Why does he do this, and what is he doing? Remember— God is looking at this from this perspective across our entire lives. And you ask the question, well, how is there so much pain and suffering in the world? And again, I think a lot of that we need to own up to as we look at our role in that. But I want to illustrate this through the story of the greatest missionary of the Bible, the great, one of the greatest apostles in the Bible, the greatest missionary in history, and that's the, we all know the name of Paul. Paul the missionary was famous you know, for all the people that he reached and all of his missionary journeys and all the things that he did. But we forget sometimes that he started off life as Saul, and Saul persecuted the early church. He was zealous for serving God, and he believed that Christianity was blasphemous. And so he persecuted and attacked and was attempting to destroy, with great success, the early church. He was attacking the early church and just wreaking havoc on the church. But he has this encounter with the risen Jesus, and that tends to change things. And so his life changes. And in the book of Romans, he gives us a snapshot of what God is dealing with as we go through this. And this is going to add a little bit more context to how our free will comes to play in all of this. Romans chapter 9, verse 22. I'm going to read through this real quick. What if God, wanting to show his wrath, and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory, that's grace, on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. What we're talking about here is, and, and in Paul's case, he's looking back at himself in some ways. He would say, I'm someone who persecuted the church. I'm someone who did all of these horrible things. And yet God didn't strike me down with a lightning bolt because God wasn't looking at me through the context of that one season of my life. God was looking at this amazing intertwined picture of all of these people. And God knew, and, and the, interesting word, the interesting thing here in verse 22, it says, what if God, and then it jumps down below and says, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? You know, a lot of times we think about this from the perspective of, 
Well, how can God allow someone like Adolf Hitler to exist who caused all that pain and suffering? And we look at all the pain and suffering that Adolf Hitler caused here, and we tend to forget the person who loves us the most is our Heavenly Father. God looks at us through the lens of a father and his child. Throughout Scripture, he refers to himself as our Heavenly Father. There is no one that is more heartbroken when something terrible happens than God. And we forget that. We walk past it. And what Paul is trying to say here is, you forget at times that the person who's suffering the most in all of this is God. But what if God was willing to suffer through all of the bad actors of history to get us into eternity with him? Because that's what it was going to take. As God is looking at this, he was willing to suffer what Saul of Tarsus did for a season because Saul, after he met the risen Jesus, became Paul, the most famous missionary who ever lived. And he led thousands and thousands and thousands who would become millions and millions, if not billions, down the road to ultimately have a relationship with God. God's not okay with the consequences of all this bad behavior. He's not. But God has to juggle this incredibly difficult question of my bad behavior. It's bad, and it, and it grieves him, and it hurts other people, and God looks at that because he loves the other people, and he loves me, and God weighs all of those bad things that I do, and he doesn't like it. But at the same time, he doesn't look at me through the lens of the bad day that I have, my worst day. He looks at me through the lens of my entire lifetime, and he loves me as, a as his child, and he wants me back. So God is constantly balancing, well, I know I know the ending of this, and I know that Saul was a terrible person when he was persecuting the church, but at the same time as Paul, he's going to lead thousands upon thousands to an eternal relationship with me. So there's a reason that there wasn't a lightning bolt that struck him down. And in the grander scheme of things, we're going to talk about this more next week, when God looks at the grander scheme of things, he's figured out the best way. This is maybe one of those questions of faith that we have to trust him a little bit on, that he's actually picked the best way. But when we look at that and walk through it, especially when we look at, for example, the story of the prodigal son, God's looking at it and he's going, I know he made that terrible decision that he walked away from me and that he said he kind of wanted me dead and wanted my money, but it never stopped me from loving him. And in the same way, all of the bad things that we've done have never stopped God from loving any one of us. If any one of us is willing to return to him, he's willing to accept us back and forgive us and love on us and bring us back in if we legitimately walk into relationship with him. If we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, if we are willing to accept the price that he paid for us on the cross, his gift of salvation, and doing things his way and not our way in that regard. I'm not earning my way to heaven. I'm accepting that gift of grace that was bought for me on the cross by my Lord, if I'm accepting that and I'm doing those things, and we've talked about that gift of salvation, if I'm doing those things, God is ready to forgive me and welcome me home. Remember the father in the story, he never stopped waiting for the younger son. When the younger son came, the father was looking for him. He was waiting for him and he was ready for him. He had done all the work. All the son had to do was come to his senses and come back home to his father. Don't forget, God's purpose in all of this is not to make us comfortable here. No, he doesn't want us to suffer, but his goal is to get us into an eternal relationship with him. 
And he's willing to wait and to give us as many chances as he possibly can to be that prodigal son who chooses to return home to him. You know, we all like to compare ourselves to the worst people in history because it makes us look really good. And we all say, well, I can't believe God didn't stop Adolf Hitler. But we never look in the mirror and say, well, I can't believe God didn't get tired of my bad behavior and stop me. No, none of us ever do anything as bad as Adolf Hitler, certainly. But I like to compare myself to the worst people in history because it makes me look really good. If I start comparing myself to the best people in history, I may not want to know how I stack up. Thankfully, that's not what God does. So God's goal in all of this is to get us into eternity. And he's not going to skip to the end. And he's not going to start taking people out just because that's it. They've made him angry. We want that on the surface until we really reflect on who we are and the bad days that we've had. And then I think we're all kind of thankful that God's not settling scores like that. Next week, we're going to talk about what is God's plan. Because the hard part is God's got eternity taken care of. What's his plan right now? We've got all this pain and suffering going on. We have all these hard things going on around us. Doesn't God have some kind of a plan for today? And the answer is yes, he does. And next week, we're going to talk about that. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of Seeking Proof, Finding Grace. I would love it if you would hit that like and subscribe button here on the podcast. We'd love to have you join us every week. If you've got questions, check us out on our website at prooftograce.com. Or if you've got questions you want to email in, you can reach us at prooftograce at yahoo.com. Thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward again to seeing you next week. Thank you, and bye-bye. Finally. Yeah.